Good morning. Still, still good morning. I wanted to just take a moment to welcome those, our guests here with us, those viewing online. We want to welcome our, uh, thank you, good sir, our uh, Destiny Table New York for joining us. Um, man, God's up to some good things. Uh, how many of you enjoyed Pastor Chris last week? Is that not a good word? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and I just want you to know, if you think all that Chris does here is, uh, is youth, then you know probably about, what, maybe 20% of what he does. Uh, he has just such, his hands are just about everything that we do, and just honored to be on your team, man. Um, just grateful for you. If you have your Bibles, why don't we go to Ephesians chapter 4. A couple weeks ago, I uh, preached on redeeming conversations, and we talked about how do we had to first redeem how we listened if we're going to redeem how we speak and redeem conversations. And today we're going to pick that up and uh, cover some of that. So we got the same passage, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 11 through 16 and then verse 29. So Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with with it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that we may give grace to those who hear, that we may give grace to those who hear. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word, and we pray in the next few moments you would um, keep us from the opinions of men, but you would speak to us. We'll pause for a moment and pray for our children. May you give them a heart to know you, to walk in your ways. May you bless those right now who are serving and ministering to them. And Lord, in here I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And I thank you in advance for what you're going to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably have not heard of Edward Everett. Edward Everett was actually the official speaker and lecturer who gave the Gettysburg Address, November 19th, 1863. He lectured for two hours to a massive group of people. And after he finished, Abraham Lincoln got up and read some words that he had written on the way over. It was less than two minutes and only 272 words. And I'd like to read it to you. It doesn't take long, but I'd like to read it to you. This is what it goes. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war, we have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. And it is altogether fitting and proper that we do this. 
But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but they'll never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they fought here uh, here have thus so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain and that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people and by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Less than two minutes. He was wrong in one account. He said, what's said here will not be much remembered. He was wrong there. But that proves a point. And the point is this. It doesn't matter about the quantity of communication. What matters is the quality of communication. Edward was hired and paid and lectured for two hours and we don't even know his name. Lincoln stood up in less than two minutes has motivated us for years. So we're talking about communication. Two weeks ago, we talked about the problem of connecting in a digital age. We talked about how, though technology has all wonderful advances, it also creates some more problems. And uh, I gave you a list of those. One's, uh, it has increased our communication capacity, but it's decreased our attentiveness and availability to the person right next to us. That we are high tech, but low touch. And that we, in texting, can... Actually, technology has created a way for human beings to have more and more relationships that only operate at their convenience, which becomes a problem. But I want to go a little deeper into the problem, maybe help you see it. Uh, uh, Dr. Jean Twinge, a psychologist, studied uh, the generational differences, and uh, she's done it multiple times over multiple generations, but she published a study in 2017 based on the generation from born 1995 to 2012. Born from 1995 to 2012. She called it the, the iGen. And the reason why that's important is because it was the really first generation that about halfway through that generation, 50% of Americans owned a smartphone. And then the, the later half was uh, social media. So you had the rise, twin rise of the smartphone and, the, uh, and social media. And here are just some of her findings. I just want to read them. I think they're pretty interesting. One is this. She notes, Suicide and depression has skyrocketed among the generation born 1995 to 2012 than any other previous generation of the same age, including those who went through the Great Depression. This is partly due, she writes, to the loss of conversation among young adults or young individuals with one another. By texting and posting, we have cleaned up or sanitized our communication. We can delete and edit and re-edit before sending and so we keep the real us from ever slipping out. But with conversations, we do not have this option. What is said cannot be unsaid. And we often are known even when we don't want to be. So she writes, if we're not careful, texting allows us to feel as though we are in constant contact while not requiring us to commit or actually give any time to the relationship. Think about this. This is one of her points. As relationships become more thinly spread... Our loneliness, I'm going to start over. As our relationships become more thinly spread, our loneliness will increase proportionately with the number of texting or social media friends we attempt to maintain. Our loneliness will increase 
proportionately to the social media friends we think we maintain. So the great risk, she says, is that our ego grows with this thin veneer of intimacy and friendship with others without requiring us to ever enter into any of its sacred pain, sorrow, or suffering that makes friendship so rich. Now this doesn't even come close to talking about how communication or um, confirmation bias plays in and how when our social media feeds just give us more content we know we already uh, agree with, how that even furthers the divide we experience among each other. Um, it doesn't even come close to talking about how um, social media has helped us turn relationships into a commodity that we can now buy and sell. And she goes to some of that. The point being is ultimately this. Let me maybe try to interpret some of this research. We've become a people who are alone. We just do it together. That communication is one of the primary ways we exemplify what it means to be human. Communication is about the only way we can build any kind of meaningful relationships. That's why, as Pastor Chris pointed out last week, it's a punishment to put somebody in, in solitary confinement because relationships is what makes life so rich and meaningful. So what we are experiencing is that the reality, that volume of communication, the more we communicate, the more connected we are, we've removed the distances we all have between each other, and yet we're finding it doesn't bring joy nor meaning to life. Now, just to be clear, I'm not trying to pick on that generation from 1995-2012. All I'm saying is they're helping us better understand what we're all going to experience. It just happens to be really um, clear in that generation. But it affects us all. So the abundance of communication that we have, coupled with the isolation and loneliness that we have, tell us what we do not need is more communication. What it tells us is though we have more possibility to make meaningful connections than we ever have before, we are still alone and uh, it's not bringing meaning to our lives. So it tells me we don't need more communication. We don't even know how to communicate in ways that will connect us with each other. We don't need more. We need to know how or maybe brush up on some skills and remember. We need to redeem communication. We can gather information, we can share ideas, spread opinions, and we can even disseminate lies quicker than ever. So we do not, again, sorry, it's rubbing my beard. The issue is not do we communicate, but how we communicate. We communicate, but we do not converse. We share, but we do not dialogue. We text and speak and post, but we do not listen to one another. So my friends, we don't just simply need communication or more. We need more vulnerable and precise dialogue with one another. Perhaps even one of the reasons we feel so alone is not because we lack community. In fact, we have all kinds of different communities now that we take part in. Maybe it's because we lack shared language for our shared experiences. We lack truthful common speech that helps us understand how one another or experiencing life. It's actually kind of ironic, as she points out at the end of her research, it's ironic that by texting and editing and re-editing in order to sanitize and keep out our imperfections from our relationships, what we actually are finding out, those imperfections is one of the things that make relationships so meaningful. I am known in my imperfections, and yet the person's still here. So what does it mean to speak the truth in love? Part of what we're going to be talking about is we cannot, let me, let me put it in the positive. If you would like to, you can avoid the danger of vulnerability, but you will not have comfort from love. 
If you want comfort that comes from love, we have to take the risk of vulnerability. But that can be scary. So let's maybe talk about it a little bit. Everybody all right? And all of you are like, great, I came on this Sunday that he's talking about this. <laughs> In this passage that we read, Paul tells us that these five ministry gifts, these apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, are given really for two reasons. They equip the saints for the work of ministry. So these five gifts are not the ministers. They are helped to equip the church who is the minister and to do ministry. So the church is the minister. The church is the one doing ministry. These five are there to equip and to build up the body of Christ until a couple things happen. Until one, we reach this unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of Christ. And then until we all together grow up to the same stature that is equal to the fullness of Christ. In other words, Paul actually believes that the church can mature together in such a way that we, not individually, but we collectively, can put on display the same presence of Christ that Christ did when he walked the earth. The fullness of Christ would be made known in the earth again by us together. Paul actually thinks that's possible. And it's not for heaven, right? Because there's not cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting in heaven. He means that we would do it here. And then he gives us two things we can do to grow, really. One is we have to learn to listen for the truth. Spiritual maturity in Christ helps us learn to discern between what's deceitful plotting and what's the truth. But he really only gives us one thing positive to do, and that is that by speaking the truth in love, we may grow up. In other words, your spiritual maturity as an individual and our maturity as a corporate body is directly tied to our speech. But speaking the truth in love will grow up into Christ who is our head. So our speech is important to our growth. And then later... In verse 29, he tells us not to let this corrupting word come out of our mouth, but what can actually give grace to those who hear. Now, this is review a little bit from last week, but I want to just, or uh, two weeks ago, I just want to kind of keep it there because I'm not so arrogant to believe that you remember what I said two weeks ago, right? I don't even know if I remember what I said two weeks ago. Uh, but I think sometimes we, we confuse grace and mercy. So again, grace would be the empowering presence of God that enables us to do what he's called us to do and to be what he's called us to be. Right? Yes, it is unmerited, but that's how grace comes. That's not what grace is. Grace is, maybe put it in a real simple definition, grace is God's action on our behalf. It's when God does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, right? And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, so two chapters earlier, verse 8, that it's by grace that you've been saved. That you're saved by grace through faith. You have done nothing of your own. God's actually done it for you, right? It's by grace that you've been saved. And then two chapters later, this same grace that saves you, Paul says, don't speak in, let's not let any corrupting word come out of our mouth, but speak in such a way that can actually give grace to those who hear. That our speech can make possible that very saving power of God, that God's action in our behalf, grace, can actually be made available in how we speak to one another. Now, disclaimer, I'm not saying that we save people with our words. What I'm saying is God can use our words to make grace available to someone that previously wasn't available to them. Just the way we communicate with them. Now, that seems like a way we could redeem conversations, amen? So how might we do that? So let's talk about what does it mean to speak the truth in love. Well, if we're going to speak the truth in love, then we have to be a people committed to... Sorry, I'm going to do this real quick. It's not like my beard grew in between services. I didn't have the problem the first one. Um, uh, a peop, we have to, first of all, if we're going to speak the truth in love, we have to be a people committed to the truth. That means we have to be committed to searching for the truth, both inwardly, and that means... 
willing to do healthy self-examination. And then we have to be willing to search for the truth circumstantially. And that's in given situations as appropriate. So let me just help you out. First of all, you don't have to have an opinion about everything. Isn't that good news? Like, you don't have to know all the truths about everything that exists. Let's just put that to rest. But when we do need to interact and do some things, we need to know the truth about them, that we are committed to finding the truth as best and most as it can be found. Now, there's the art, you know, what is truth? The simple way is, truth is what you run into when you're wrong. That's what truth is. What's reality? It's what you hit when you're wrong, right? Like, you can choose to step off the roof. You can't choose not to hit the ground. Like, that's just what's happening. Um... It's, uh, and the thing about truth that's so frustrating, isn't it, is it doesn't seem to be very nice. Like, truth doesn't care how you feel about it. So you thought your car had gas, you get in and drive, it ends up empty, you're on the side of the road, your car does not care how sincere you were about uh, the way you felt about the gas tank. You can't say to your car, oh, car, I thought you had, you know, more gas. And it says, oh, I'm sorry, Jen, you know, let's have more gas. It's just, truth is one of those things, it just feels... Like it doesn't care, it's indifferent almost about how we feel about it. And that can be scary at times. But we have to be willing to pursue that in the context of love. What, what's really happening? Now, truth is not relevant, but it can be contingent upon things, so that's something to note, right? Like um, certain things, and never mind, I don't need to go into explanation, that's more philosophy, let me move on. The point is, truth is not relative, but it can be contingent on things happening, that's true. <laughs> All right, keep going. We have to be committed to hearing the truth, to listening for the truth. In other words, we, I remember once a man came in my office, he was yelling, he was so upset, and uh, everything he was doing was unhealthy, and I, you know, I just wanted to distance myself from him. But I just felt the Lord say, I want you to listen for anything he has to say to you that's true. And I wanted to go, well then, you know, tell him to quit yelling. But the truth is, can we be so committed to the truth that we're willing to listen for it even when it comes and packages we wish, we wish were different. Now, we have to be committed then for the search of truth, for not just speaking it, but listening for it, for receiving it. That means we have to be committed to conflict, to healthy confrontation. That means we have to be committed to dialogue that's necessary for us to come to the truth, because very rarely do you come to find the truth on your own. You need some help. But that also means we have to be willing to have some really uncomfortable conversations sometimes, right? We have to be committed to that. It's not just like, oh, I'll tolerate it. It means we have to actually come to expect that it's necessary if I'm going to come to what is true. Now, look, I can kind of feel the tension in the room. So in John, John 3, 19, the Bible says, it says, John says man, but he means humankind, humanity. Um, humanity loved darkness rather than the light. It is the only place in the New Testament where the word agape love is used to describe a different kind of love than God's. And it actually says men agape darkness more than light. Men love to live in deception. They love to live in the dark. Plato said, we can forgive a child for being scared of the dark, the real tragedy is men who are afraid of the light. And one of the ways we do it, we do it all the time. We, 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 maybe we enjoy doing something. We start to find out that as we're doing it, it has negative effects. So we try to just live in denial of all the negative effects so we can just keep doing the thing we want. Like I'm the only one. All right. 
They're looking at me so spiritual. Right? So we have to learn to welcome the truth. And one way that makes the truth a little more easy to welcome is if we come to this really hard truth about life. And that is in life, pain is really unavoidable. Pain is unavoidable. I know nobody here is tweeting that, and I get it. Right? Nobody's going to put that on the refrigerator. But pain is unavoidable. If we can just realize that there's either good pain that comes from trying to discover truth and align ourselves with it, cooperate with it so we can get a particular result, or you can have the bad pain that tends to come from refusing to cooperate with truth and reality. It's like, uh, it's like working out. You can have the pain that comes from working out, the soreness and the discomfort and, and waking up early and all this stuff or dieting, or you can have the pain that comes from not working out. But one has an end date to it and one doesn't. But to say you want an option that has no pain is just really very rarely an option in life. So if I can come to the point that pain's unavoidable, just the more I learn to cooperate with what is true, the more that that pain will have an end date and can lead to actually a good fruit and result versus pain that comes from just trying to ignore or live in denial of what is true. So we must learn then how to cooperate with truth, how to welcome it. We have to be able, if we're going to be, speak the truth in love, we have to be committed to finding it, which can be difficult. And we need each other to do so. But the second thing is, we have to be people then also committed to love. And when we talk about loving, we always, isn't it funny, we almost always think about whether or not we can give love well. But when I talk about being committed to love, it means being committed to giving it and receiving it. The same humility that allows a person to love well is also the kind of humility that can receive being loved well. So a great question may not be just how are you giving love. A great question would also be how are you at receiving love? Everybody all right so far? Cool. All right. I'm uncomfortable, but I'm going to keep going. Look, we have to be committed to putting away pretense, pretending, or, or trying to just appear to be loving because we're actually after learning how to love in reality. When the Bible says love never fails, it doesn't mean loving behavior never fails. It doesn't mean pretending to be loving never fails. It means love itself never fails. Not looking loving, not appearing to be nice, but love itself never fails. It's like when, when um, people talk... You, we, People trying to figure out how to love God, and they say, you know, what do I do um, to love God? And they look at what people who love God, what do they do? Oh, they read the Bible, they pray, they, they do these things. So they try to do those things in order to love God. Instead of just realizing you start by actually admitting to God, I don't love you, but I desire to love you. I need you to come and love on me. I need to learn to receive your love so that you who first loved me might turn that love back to you. So instead of trying to just do things to appear to I, like I love God, how do I just start with, I don't love God, but I desire to? And God's not surprised by that. He knows that, and he loves you anyway. But oftentimes we spend our energy trying to appear to be loving. Instead of addressing the things in us that make us feel like we have to appear to be loving, instead of just being loving. Okay, well, that went over well. We must learn to keep practicing asking for, receiving, and giving forgiveness. If we're going to be a people committed to love, we have to be a people committed to forgiveness. Again, these are one of these things. When you bring it up with people, everybody starts thinking about how good am I at forgiving those who hurt me? But let's start with the other way. How good are you at asking for and receiving forgiveness? And that means we're going to have to learn language of confession. We're going to have to learn how to name our sin. It's not just, hey, I'm sorry. It's, I was selfish. Will you forgive me? It's not just, I made a mistake. 
It was, I was so focused on myself, I wasn't even thinking of you. How do we actually learn how to repent to one another and find language for confession? I'll give you a great source. The uh, Anglican Church has the uh, Book of Common Prayer, but what we don't realize, inside the Book of Common Prayer is actually, they would read together as a congregation prayers of confession of sin. And it is a great way to learn language of confession by listening to uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of the saints confessing. You start learning language of confession. I thought, oh, never mind, we'll keep going. So in one sense, what I mean by that is if we can be a people who are committed to loving one another, that creates the possibility that we can be a people who can speak the truth more clearly to one another. Right? And let's just start. If we could just start by, hey, you can speak the truth to me and I promise not to kill you. How about we start there? That seems fair. Um, and that seems fair if we can do that with like the whole world. And then we can move to, okay, I promise if you speak the truth to me, I promise not to hurt you or to be violent against you. That'd be a good start. And then maybe we can get back to, I promise if you speak the truth to me, there'll be no hateful behavior for me. Or maybe I'll not try to get even. Or maybe my defensiveness I'll not lash out. But the more we learn and committed to loving one another in reality and sincerely, the more we create a possibility for us to speak the truth to one another in love. But the opposite is also true. The more we are committed to the truth and telling the truth to one another, then whatever love we do have will be sincere because we will know the other person and they will know me and our love can be then sincere. So one needs the other and vice versa. Hope that makes sense to you. We can be a people who can disagree with one another. We, when people are afraid to speak the truth, I'm going to run into people who disagree. I guarantee you will. Look, I have disagreements when it's just me in the room. You're going to have disagreement. That's not the point. The point is this. We have something that binds us together that's bigger than our disagreement, and that is Jesus Christ, our head. I'm baptized into Christ, and you're baptized into Christ, and in a really weird way, we're baptized into each other, and therefore our unity is not around whether or not we agree. Our unity is around the fact that there was no salvation outside of the fact that Jesus rescued us, and I belong to him. So then we're free to have disagreement. That doesn't change anything. And we can have dialogue and help each other work through that. So let's be practical about it. What does it look like? I don't just want to say, hey, we've got to be committed to the truth and we've got to be committed to love. Now, you know, go on your way. What does it look like? To speak the truth in love means love is the filter through which we run our communication, right? That's something we talked about a couple weeks ago. That is just like a, a coffee filter, you know, keeps the grains out and lets um, what's uh, pure or, 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 you know, essential come out. That same way, love, we run our communication through the filter of love, so to speak, and allow it to catch all the unholy and unhealthy things, attitudes and expressions and desires and motives. And, and so what we can communicate might be just as pure as it can possibly be. We're not always going to get there, but that's our goal. That's what it means to speak the truth in love. Love's that filter through which our communication goes. But what does that look like? Well, first of all, that doesn't mean that you need to suppress what you feel. So let me be, let me be clear. Something, somebody says something to you and it makes you angry. Before you respond in anger, um, a great response might be, in love, how am I going to communicate for the benefit of the other? That may be. Uh, and part of that, to benefit the other, may be to let them know how I'm feeling. Right? Now, obviously, they may know how you're feeling when you punch a hole in the wall. They may be able to get that. Um, but what they won't do is want to move closer to you. Right? It's like, you know, shark in the water. You know, let's not move towards the shark. Let's come back. Right? Like all of you don't do this. How many of you speed until you see the police officer getting the... Everybody slows down, right? Yeah. Same concept, right? 
The, the punishers in the room, everybody behave themselves. That's not intimacy or communication. Right? So my point is, how do we then communicate what's going on inside of us in a way that the other person still might want to move towards us? Does that make sense? That's what we mean by filtering. I don't mean suppressing our feelings. I mean um, learning how to communicate. A great, uh, a great way to do that is when you have those experiences or feelings, now pause long enough to say, whatever, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm frustrated, I want to punch a hole in the wall. Um, I think I actually yelled the other night at a football game, break his legs! And I went, oh no, I shouldn't have yelled that. Jesus, heal my heart. But look, it's... Um, but that, that's kind of it, tongue-in-cheek, but it's like, Lord, right now I am whatever, blank. Right now I want to hurt the other person. So I yield this desire to you. And I ask you to come be for me what I can't be for myself right now. And come be love for me and love for the other. And that was me trusting Jesus. It's surrendering that to Jesus and asking him to come be for me what I can't be for myself, which, by the way, it was our functional definition of grace. Come act on my behalf right now. So we yield those things to the Lord. Let's go through a couple of them. If we're going to speak the truth in love, practically we've got to learn how to handle our nonverbal, right? Nonverbal. Uh, how are you doing? Fine! Well, you're not fine then. You know, it's like, that's clear. Or the... Uh, the huff, anybody, or the sigh? How you doing? <sighs> like, do you hate me right now? You know, what does that mean? Or the look? What we just have to be, if we're going to speak the truth in love, we have to realize our body is communicating. And how do we, and oftentimes to think about the body is it's really practiced, and it tends to go ahead of you, right? You don't have to think much about it. So your body is like, gets out in front of you, you know, almost like a little, like a, like a ninja and does stuff that, you know, you didn't, before you can have a chance to respond. So we're trying to learn how to rein that in, right? How to manage our bodies in such a way where we can communicate love even non-verbally, right? Uh, that's difficult, but we got to start there. We can talk about that. Now, when we talk about speaking the truth in love, what I'm not talking about is some, some petty legalism. Um, I remember years ago, um, you know, when, when I would travel to places and preach for youth camps or things like that, they tend to put you up in, you know, some real dysfunctional person's home, I guess, hoping you could heal them or something while you're there. And uh, I remember this, I had a little kid, I didn't have kids at the time, I was just really young. And I kind of, you know, did, I got your nose thing. Ha, I got your nose, and I put it back. I got your nose. And the guy actually came to me and said, sir, would you please stop? We don't lie to our children, and you're lying to him. Son, he doesn't really have your nose, and he's not really putting it back. And I remember thinking, if this kid really thinks I have his nose, you have a whole other set of problems with this kid, <laughs> right? But two is like, oh, we don't lie. Let me tell them the truth. Your daddy is it, you know. <laughs> I'll tell the truth. But look, that is, that is, that is petty. That's petty legalism. That's small-minded petty legalism. That's playfulness. And that is trying to appear to be something instead of being it in reality. And that's missing the ability to, to communicate in a way that's loving and kind and playful with another person. Right, so that's not what I'm talking about, first of all, when we're talking about speaking the truth in love. We've got to address indirect communication. Indirect communication, where would you like to eat? Question we're all probably going to ask ourselves soon. Where would you like to eat? Now, that could be, indirectly, could be a way of saying, you haven't cooked in a long time, and I don't figure you're going to cook tonight, so where would you like to eat? That could communicate, where would you like to eat? I hope you're not cooking tonight. Where would you like to eat? It could communicate, I don't plan on cooking tonight. Where would you like to eat? It could communicate, I really want Mexican. I'm just trying to figure out where you are. Where would you like to eat? I'm trying to figure out where this negotiation starting, right? It could really mean, I just don't have a preference. Where would you like to eat? 
But the problem is we load one simple question like that with tons of indirect communication. And it is not speaking the truth in love. It's hiding the truth. Instead of just being direct, and this is what we want. I really would like Mexican. I am open to negotiation, but I'm leaning hard there. How is that for you, or would you like something different? And that can be more direct, right? Um, so we're, we're, work, we're working on not putting it all with a, 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 um, loading up communication with indirect ways. And it, it, it becomes a problem, the negative side of it, when we're trying to hint at things we really need. It's funny when we talk about food, but when it's love or affirmation or physical touch and we're trying to hint at it while we're drowning, that's a problem. Right? So listen, it doesn't matter how prophetic you think the other person is, just tell them what you need. So intimacy, because into me I looked, and I saw, and I'm going to communicate to you so that you can see into me. But I'm going to be the one to communicate in a way so that you can see me. I'm not going to put that burden on you. Now the problem with that is, is you become really vulnerable, don't you? What if you say, I could really use some affirmation. The other person goes, <laughs> affirmation, you're an idiot. And that's what we're all afraid of. We're all afraid I'm going to reveal my heart and they're going to stick a knife in it. The problem is we're walking around with knives in our back anyway and think somehow not telling people is helping. So the best we can do is communicate what it is we need, let the other person decide, trusting that regardless of what the other person does, God has taken on me as his responsibility to meet my needs as he sees fit. And if this person won't, God will arrange some way and somehow in a healthy way for this need that he's made me with to be met. Now, that's how we operate with truth and faith in that sense. All right. Now, now the next thing is, if we're going to speak the truth in love, we've got to speak the whole truth as best we know it. Right? Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pink Panther, where the, uh, the detective comes over to the man and says, you know, is this, does your dog bite? And the man says, no, my dog does not bite. And he looks down at the dog next to him and reaches for him, and the dog bites his arm off. And he says, I thought you said your dog doesn't bite. My dog doesn't bite. That's not my dog. Right? That is intentionally withholding the truth. Now, listen, that... that uh, I've seen it over and over again, and honestly, um, it can be a power play for, for petty people who don't feel they have enough power. I'll give you an example. It's a way for people who feel powerless to, to have power, and that is to withhold truth. I was in India, and I remember going to a train station, and I had to catch a train, and I said, what time does the train to Bapadla leave? And the lady obviously didn't like people. I don't know, but she was not happy. And she said, it, it leaves at 4. And I said, all right, it's whatever, 2.33. All right, bought the ticket. I waited, I waited. 4 o'clock came, no train. 4.30 came. That's not unusual in India. So I just waited. I waited 5 o'clock, 5.30. I went back to her and said, ma'am, uh, where's the train to Bapala? I was supposed to come at 4. She said, it, it'll come at 4. And I was like, ma'am, it's, you know, whatever, 6.30. And she's like, oh, no, it's 4 o'clock tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I'm here to love people for Jesus, but I will make an exception. But no, that's what, you know, it's like, that's just petty. You could tell somebody that. And honestly, it was on the back of my ticket if I'd have looked. But I had a conversation with her about a 4 o'clock ticket to Bobco. I didn't think to look for a date. But that's just a petty way that we can lord it over people. So if we're going to speak the truth in love, it means we have to speak the whole truth as best we know it. That also means if we're going to speak the truth in love, we cannot use factual statements that actually imply a lie or cover up a lie. So one of the, one of the staff here uh, after the service an elder steps up to them and says hey how's Pastor Lawrence doing and the staff says well he was sober today now he's sober every day but what does that imply is that true yes it's true he was sober today but what did it imply 
He may not be sober on other days. It was a factual statement that implied a lie. We can um, use technicalities to cover a lie. So a man's in the witness stand for vehicular manslaughter. He ran over a lady, and the prosecutor says, Sir, did you run over this lady with your car? And he says, No, I did not run over that lady with my car. And he said, Okay. Brings out the TV, turns the TV on, said, Is that you? Yes, that's me. Is that you and your vehicle? Yes, that's me and my vehicle. Bump, bump, bump. Was that that lady? Yes, that was that lady. You, did you not run over the lady with a car? No, I did not run over the lady with a car. That's a truck. Right, I, that was a really long story for that point. I just didn't realize that. I shouldn't have done all that. My point being is that's a technicality trying to cover the truth. As Christians who are trying to speak the truth in love, we're not interested in, in hanging people up on the technicality. We're interested in trying to get as, the truth as we can in the context of love, and we're not trying to maneuver that around to get around it. So in other words, if we're going to speak the truth in love as Christians, it means we are willing to examine our motives behind our communication and keeping our communication as pure as possible. This means confessing then when our motives are twisted and we ask, and ask for forgiveness. So when you communicate, anybody else, I, I hope I'm not the only one, but anybody ever communicate something with a specific intent just to hurt the other person? Like, that was it. Oh, no, you're all so spiritual. Well, I'm just saying there are times when I have, you know, in my long past before I was a Christian, just joking. Um, uh, but sometimes we communicate to hurt, and we have to just pause and say, you know, I'm sorry for that. For what I just did was the whole purpose of that was to hurt you. I was defensive, and I wanted to hurt you. And that is, that is darkness in me. And I need Jesus to heal me. Will you pray for me? Listen, parents, your children are learning how to repent by watching you repent to them and to each other. I remember one time watching the World Series, Judah was a little run around, and I heard somebody say from the back, um, be sure Judah doesn't play with the vase vase. And he did, <laughs> and it broke. And I picked him up and spanked him and took him to the room. And then I went in the room after a little bit, and I looked at him and said, now, you know why I spanked you? And I just felt like the Lord said to me, do you know why you spanked him? And it hit me. I didn't spank him because he broke a vase. I spanked him because he was inconvenient to the World Series. Four-year-old shouldn't be playing with a boss. He's bored. I remember I just knelt down. I took his hands and I said, look, I need to repent. I, I don't know why I spanked you. I shouldn't have done that. I'm working to figure that out. Would you, I put his little hands on my head. I said, would you pray for me? I don't want to do that. I don't want to just spank you because you got in the way of the World Series. Right? I mean, properly. Come sit on my lap. I'll show you, teach you what baseball is about. But something else, because a kid playing with a boss, he's bored. There's got to be something else to be doing. You see what I'm saying? But my point is learning to repent is how we teach children how to repent. And uh, repenting to them is not a bad thing. So we have, must uh, continue to um, confess when we have motives that aren't right. Um, look, I do need to say, though, there is a difference between, especially in a marriage, there's a difference between things being private and things being hidden. There are certain things that I may have with my wife and my wife may have me that is private and I don't need to tell other people about it. And when there's times in which that may seem to be uncovered, it's perfectly fine for me to say, I'm not going to go there. Or I have no more to say about that. And you might think, well, are you not hiding things? Well, no, I'm actually out of respect for this, my spouse. I'm going to keep it private. There's just certain things that are private at an honor for somebody whose relationship is at a different level than other people, right, that we keep private. 
So not divulging everything is not hiding things. It's actually honoring a relationship in which there's things that are private. Does that make sense? All right, cool. That's okay. All right, so here we go. Christians are willing to examine their own hearts to work to keep their love on towards the other regardless of what they're doing. Just think about it. Jesus is the kind of guy, the person we're all growing up into and to bear his fullness. Jesus is the kind of guy who they nail him to a cross and he says, you can't make me hate you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You can spit on me and beat me and crucify me, but you can't make me hate you. He keeps his love on towards people even in a crucifixion. And that's who we're growing up to be like. And that's honestly power. Do what you want to me, but you can't make me hate you. You can't make me turn my love off. I can keep it on. That's a powerful person. Right? For this is how, again, Christ has loved us. So speaking the truth in love is what, this is what Augustine wrote. St. Augustine, his confessions, wrote this. One has spoken the truth in love when they are more known after they have communicated not whether or not their statement was factual. I love that. In other words, speaking the truth in love means I am more known when I'm finished communicating, not more hidden, regardless if what I said was factually true or not. That communicate with you guys? So in order to do this, we got to learn all kinds of things. We got to have language for confession. We have to have language for lamenting. Right? Instead of just somebody going, I'm just sad. No, actually, you're grieving. That's a different thing than sad. Sad may come with grieving, but grieving's different than sadness. Right? Or I'm bored may just be I'm lonely. We got to get language a little more precise. What's actually happening? What's really going on? And that's going to be, we're going to be clumsy at it and not understand it, but we got to be willing to go there in order to figure that out. And sometimes we have to come to people and say, I need help trying to figure out what's going on in me. It feels like sadness, but there's a twinge of anger underneath. Help me figure it out. Oh, you're hurt. <laughs> you're not sad. Right? You can be angry, but not vengeful. But when somebody's vengeful, you need to help them. Hey, you're about to cross the line where God says that's his. Am I communicating with you? But that takes some, nobody's born with that skill. We have to work on it. All right, well, at the end of the day, relationships are what life is about, and they're not automatic. And we have to learn how to communicate in such a way that can build meaningful relationships and make grace possible, or allow, at least give God the opportunity to use our words to make grace possible. And that would be a redeeming way to communicate. So let me just end. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and I just want to end with a story. Um, about 12, 13 years ago, we had a school of kingdom ministry, and we um, had about 40, 50 students in it, and um, we had a, a couple in their, you know, 1920s, and uh, we're kind of leading one of them, and, and they wanted, they wanted, called me, wanted to meet with me in my office. I assumed they'd been dating. I assumed they wanted to talk about marriage and premarital counseling. They come in, they sit down, and I said, "What's up?" And she says, "I'm pregnant." Now, just remind you, these are leaders in the Kingdom School of Ministry. Cool. Just make sure I give you the context. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, salt and pepper voice. Wow. You know, um, I said, so what's the problem? And you should have thought I'd, I slapped him. She was like, well, I'm, I'm pregnant. Well, not much we can do about that now. So what's the problem? And they kind of waited, and they looked at each other, and finally said, well, we had sex outside of marriage. And I said, yeah, I got that, you know. Uh, you still doing that? No, we stopped. Well, great, you stopped. What's the problem? And they kind of just looked. Finally, he said, I don't know what you want us to say. And I said, well, I want the truth. But it sounds like the truth is you don't know why you did what you did. You don't know what the problem is. 
how about I help you find out what the problem was? You know, okay, you know. And I said, so how does two brilliant people who love Jesus, who know they have a calling on their life, who've said yes to that calling, who want to go to the nations for Jesus, compromise your convictions? And she immediately goes, my roommates told me that he shouldn't stay over when they, after they go to bed so late, but I just don't like it when people tell me what to do. I said, okay. Do you think that affects you in other areas of your life? <laughs> Wasn't hard. Ding, ding, ding. You know, work, job, parents, everything, you know. And I said, so if you were going to repent of something, what would you repent of? And she waited. I mean, it was like a long, maybe minute, minute and a half. And she finally said, I guess I would repent of pride for not listening to people who I know love me tell me hard things. And I said, how does that pride show up? We helped work through it. Rebellion. So I'm going to repent, not because I'm pregnant. I'm going to repent because pride would not allow me to listen to people I know who love me but spoke things to me I didn't want to hear. That's repentance. That's a confession. Now we got to some truth. So I turned to him and said, what are you? And he goes, I don't want to do this. Right? He kind of watched me kind of walk with there. I said, well, we're going to do it. So, uh, what, what, you know, what, how does somebody like you who loves Jesus, you know, convicted, how do you get in a situation where you compromise your convictions? And he says, I would tell her to, I needed to go. I would tell her we needed to stop. I would tell her we're crossing the boundary. I would tell her. But I just, you know, she would just keep going. She would keep suggesting. She would, I didn't want her to be disappointed or angry at me. And we, I said, so, do you compromise your convictions to Jesus in order to keep people from being disappointed with you in other areas of your life? And sure enough, yeah. So what do we call that? If you're going to repent of something, what is it you're going to repent of? Now this, I'm speeding the process up because I got to close, but it was a lot longer conversation. Anyway, after some time and talking to come to, I'm going to repent of idolatry for caring more about her not being disappointed with me than I do about keeping my convictions to the Lord. Ah, now that's a repentance. So I said, well, come on. We're, we're going to clean it up, so we're going to clean it up. So we go into the School of Kingdom Ministry. The class is there. I call the class. I tell them we got a situation. I said, here are these two. And uh, I said, they have something they want to share. They didn't start with, hey, we're pregnant. They started with, she started actually, looked right at her roommates in the room and said, I want to repent to you for my pride and rebelliousness, for not listening to you when you told me these things. And, you know, she goes on. And he repents for his idolatry. And then they share the news. And I said, now, guys, how do we want to respond? And a couple guys from the front row got up. They grabbed him, and the other girl grabbed her and just said, we forgive you. And they hugged him and him. And then about 40 of the students got up, came forward, gathered around him, and began to pray for him. They would pray that God would bless the child. They prayed that God would um, extend grace and forgiveness to them. They would know what it's like to be forgiven. That couple is still married today with three kids in ministry in another state. But what we might have done is said, you go to Houston, you go to Alaska, right? Never to touch again. Or worse, you got to get married now. Oh, let's, you know, let's double up one mistake with another. Not mistake, but compromise their convictions one way. Let's throw them into it, you know. <laughs> it was unhealthy that they got here. Let's throw them into something else. Instead of helping them come to what was true and to speak the truth in such a way that made grace possible. What I'm trying to say is if we need each other to do it, we can't do it alone. But if we can learn to speak the truth pervaded with God's love, we might find 
He was there waiting the whole time to redeem it. Would you stand with me? There are um, different ways to respond. We're going to worship, but I'm going to ask our prayer team if you guys wouldn't mind going to the back. We'll have a prayer team in the back if you'd like to receive prayer for anything. It can be, uh, well, anything the Lord might be um, speaking to you about or maybe you're concerned with. You can go to the back and receive prayer. There's communion here in the middle behind the uh, camera, and you're welcome to take communion while we worship. Um, one of the ways we worship is with our tithes and offerings. There's, there's uh, spaces to give if you'd like to do that. But I just want to pray for us that we would uh, just respond as the, Lord, as the Lord leads. Father, we come saying we need help to speak the truth in love. and We, we need help to be the kinds of people who will speak in such a way that, that make redemption available to a hurting world. We don't just want to speak the truth so people can might hear us. We just blow things a little louder. We want to speak the truth in love so people who have heard us may come to trust us. And Lord, we need you to work in us that we might be people that can hear the truth when spoken to us. So Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, help. Create in us a clean heart that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.